What are the arguments from Brian Koberger and his defense team? What are the arguments that they're making? You know, I know that a lot of times we've seen or I've seen in the comments section where somebody will say, I think that, you know, this case or this this murder happened at three o'clock, not at four, you know, the original timeline. And that's not an argument that we've seen Ann Taylor make. So I'm going to discuss what the arguments that they are actually making. Big Blue, have you ever have you heard that argument from Ann Taylor and Brian Koberger's defense team uh, referencing, you know, the time uh, uh, this crime was committed? Um, I heard it from our team in the beginning that they wanted to get it clarified. Yeah, because they were, you know, at first they had put out the, the they didn't put up the wrong time, but they put that time frame out that that didn't make sense to most people. Yeah, that's crazy, man. I, I haven't seen. I gotta go back and watch it then. Um, but I hadn't seen like because um, I know that that was a debate amongst amongst people, right? I mean, I, and, I didn't see it on her, her per se, but I saw it like on. On some of the chat rooms and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like, there's that's in the chat rooms. Yeah. Like, have you seen Ann Taylor go up there and say, you know, this happened earlier? You know, no. right. I haven't either. No. And I don't think that's an argument that they're making. That is just speculation from somebody out there with no basis or anything like that. Because if there was any truth to it, that would be brought up, wouldn't you think, Blue? Yeah, it would definitely be... Um one of the main points of trying to prove that he's innocent was uh, the time difference. If, if he said he was out at this time, but it happened at that time, then that would definitely be part of their, their case. Right. Or if, you know, I mean, cause he, he had his phone off by three o'clock. It was off at like two fifty or two forty something. So even if, if this crime had been committed at three, you know, he had left Pullman based on the probable cause affidavit around two forty five, two forty seven. So it's plausible that he can make it to the back of, well, it's more than plausible. Yeah, he definitely could get to the back of the Pullman Police Department on Indian Hills Drive by 328. And so, you know, well, that's the first time that that vehicle was seen. So if they're saying that that's him, you know, just driving around that murders happened earlier. Yeah, I think that they would be arguing that. I think we'd see some sort of motion. We'd We'd see something other than delaying this another year. Am I, you get what I'm saying, Big Blue? Yeah. I I get I get what you're saying. I've never heard her like in court say that that's one of the reasons why that's not part of his defense that he was a wrong timing. Now I, I guess there's a possibility there that it, it could happen one time. So let's go through the arguments that they actually she's actually making. You know, the first one that they made was the grand jury, right? They said that the standard for a grand jury indictment is beyond reasonable doubt. Now, that's the standard for, you know, courts and, and, and for guilt or not guilty. Right. Or if somebody's guilty is beyond beyond reasonable doubt. Grand jury grand jury has always been and not just in Idaho, but you know, a lot of other places. And I may not say always, but, you know, in the last century or so has been probable cause. You know, if there's probable cause to go to court, there's an indictment and you can move forward. You know, this was a, in my opinion, a Hail Mary. What did you think about the argument of grand jury? I mean, I think that they had enough evidence for the grand jury to to approve it. You know, I I've seen them deny a couple of cases, but not 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 really. You know, because it has to go to court to be able to get all the evidence to be able to prove, uh, you know, the innocence of the person. But by what's presented, there's always going to be enough to be able to get a search warrant for the arrest. Mm-hmm. That's enough for an indictment. Yeah, I mean, the the, the standard for 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 indictment like i said there's a saying out there uh you can indict in a ham sandwich because all you need is uh enough evidence to say that there's enough evidence to go to court and and that's it what you know there's, it's a process 
if if they have enough evidence to say that there's enough suspicion there that there's probable cause to make the arrest and go to court, that doesn't necessarily mean that the person is guilty or they committed the crime or that there's, you know, evidence or proof beyond reasonable doubt. They still have to go through that process. And then, you know, there's the court phase where they can, you know, defend their innocence. You know, that's just like I said, that's the process of which things take place regardless of anything. And I thought it was a Hail Mary. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And sure enough, it didn't. So the next argument that they've had as of recent, well, you know, we'll, we'll continue in, in, in order. Uh, the next one was going to be the the DNAs. They're saying that there was three unidentified male DNAs uh, at, at the residence. One was outside in a glove. Yeah. Two were inside in the area on which where the bodies were. Don't say which bodies, just two of the bodies that we can assume. What do you think about that evidence, Blue, or that question? Is that something that still sticks with you? Not really. Like To me, no, because if it was that important, they would still be uh, searching for a match in that DNA. It would be like, you know, there's still uh, unidentified individuals that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. We have the DNA, we just don't have them in the systems. Right. For those that think that this crime was committed by, you know, Name your favorite suspect, right? One of the Jacks, you know, one of the persons from the fraternity, you know, whoever. If it, if, if it was them that committed this crime, police are aware who they are. I'm assuming they asked for majority of, if not all of their DNA, and I'm assuming most of them gave it up. And for those that didn't, I'm assuming that they uh, picked up a cigarette butt. It's none of theirs because it's still unidentified, right? I mean, most of the time, even if they're a police or anybody that works for any of the judicial system, they all get fingerprinted and coded just to be able to work at most of those places. They have to get background check. The background check, yes. The fingerprints, yes. I'm not entirely certain. I don't know about now, but it wasn't a a requirement when, you know, like 20 years ago. (laughs) So I'm not sure if it's uh, different now, but uh, that could be. But the fingerprints and the and the background check, yes, 100%. Yeah, DNA, I mean, that's only entered in specific systems if you do certain things. So. You know, for the DNA, though, my 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 thoughts are there was 150 people in that house. I know a lot of people are saying, like, how can there only be, you know, three DNA samples in the house? That's not what it says. It says that there's three unidentified samples. There's probably a tremendous amount of samples there. We can see evidence of um, a party there. You know, you can see evidence of the party the night before. They didn't clean anything up, which also kind of on its own debunks the whole um, they cleaned up the scene. You know, Dylan and, and Bethany. No, they didn't. You can see all the crap everywhere. If if somebody got attacked in the kitchen or the dining room or or the uh, that second living room, you're going to see, you know, or if they're walking through there in the manner that most people think where it's just kind of flying everywhere, then it would have been on that trash and it would have been on all those things. That were, you know, there it would have been on the bottles. They would have had to have cleaned those up. They would have had to have thrown those things away. They would have had to have thrown the trash away. It wasn't. It was left in the same place that it had been. And which also brings me to the other question where, you know, there are so many people out there that look at Brian Koberger and say, you know, he had no DNA in his car that, you know, it can't be him. It can't be because there's no DNA in his car. He had seven weeks to clean his car, but there's no DNA, right? But there's also the same folks that'll say that Dylan and Bethany cleaned up the house in eight hours. No, I, I, you know, you can always tell that that's not 100% true because they couldn't open the door into one of the rooms without 
Well, I don't even know if they attempted to open the door. You know, from my understanding, it sounds like they never attempted to open the door. They never went to the second. They never checked on Xana's door or upstairs. I think, I don't know this, but I think that if anyone, if any of them did move, I think Dylan went down to Bethany's, you know, at some point, you know, whether it was, you know, throughout the night or after Hunter Johnson arrived. He said, I'm here. I'm going to go check over there. He, She got out and went downstairs to where Bethany was. Uh, I don't know. Those are possibilities because, you know, the only reason I think that is in the statement, it does say that, you know, Dylan's, Dylan's statement says originally I, I stayed in my bed. And he used the term originally, which which sticks to me. You know what I mean? You know, how are they, you know, people expect these two young ladies to have cleaned up a horrific scene, cleaned it up horrifically, like a horrific scene that police officers who are trained and have seen, you know, some pretty horrific scenes themselves, whether it be uh, accident fatalities or things of that nature, or, or people that have passed underwater and bloated and exploded. You know, those things are, are things you're trained in and to see and things that you've seen. Those guys needed therapy. They were they were shook by it. And when we're supposed to believe that these 20 and 19 year old girls, you know, a couple of first year in college, uh, no experience in forensics or, or things of that nature, were able to completely clean up the entire scene, only leaving one latent footprint. You know, if, if they were able to clean it and don't you think there would be evidence of the cleanup? And, and since there's not any evidence of the cleanup, like because if there was evidence of the cleanup, then, you know, you'd probably see those girls in handcuffs. Like, I don't understand why they think that they wouldn't. They arrested Emma Bailey. People bring up Emma Bailey a lot. Emma Bailey was a young lady from the area. She was attractive. She got arrested. So it's not like they're looking at these girls saying we can't arrest them because they're young and attractive. That's kind of being hypocritical there, right? Yeah, I don't think they, 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 um, I don't think they cleaned up. But the thing is that after a night of partying like that, they probably did wake up super late. Well, I don't know if they did or not. I do think that at the end of the day, what I honestly think is they, she saw someone, it frightened her. She wasn't sure exactly what she saw, though. You know, in the statement, it doesn't say she saw a knife. Now, if you go back and listen to our last show, if you haven't seen it, we had a caller call in not too long ago and tell us about, you know, her horrific story where her and her boyfriend had a uh, home invasion and, you know, the guy basically tortured them and stuff. And there was a moment where she ran and hid in the closet and she could have left and she had her phone in her hand, didn't call anybody. So just saying that in the moment things happen and you can't really, uh, you know, most people really can't say what they're going to do in those moments. I know a lot of people say, oh, man, I would fight back. I would do this. I would do that. Uh, truth is, unless you, you're trained in those type of things, uh, most people freeze. You know, it is what it is. Yeah, man. It's a flight or fight kind of kind of situation, but some people just don't do anything. Most people, dude. I mean, you got to be a, a certain type of person to handle that type of stress, stay cool, calm, and collective, and, um, you know, and be able to do something. I mean, you can well your arms and, you know, maybe some people will do that. But I, I guarantee you the majority of people are going to just try to beg and or you know, put their hands up in the, in the way, yeah. you know, and, and I know that there's, you know, a lot of people that say, and even, even the family that says that they think that Kaylee fought back and, and this and that. The only thing is with that is there's a camera that picked up audio and there's no, there's no sounds of anybody fighting back. There's no sounds of anybody screaming. There's no sounds of anybody uh, that obviously sounds like they're passing away or somebody's taking their life. There's a thud, some whimpers, maybe whispers and a dog barking. Yeah. Think that she fought back, and that's a good thing in their minds. I'll just leave it there and leave it at that. She did fight back and still passed away. And that's a hard, harsh reality. Is that mm, right? The main and thing that we got to do now is just try to get their justice, try uh -huh. to get this court hearing, uh, and then figure out if Brian Cover is the guy 
right. we should, you know, focus on that right now. But you know, they're gonna keep delaying it. They have too much information to go through. And I don't buy that, to be honest with you. I don't I buy. Don't I don't buy that there's too much information for them to go through. I think to me, and I've said it before, this is a tactic to get the change of venue, right? And, and the way that that works is right now, the prosecution has thrown, has shown their hand and they've said, we can only do this trial during the summer because it'll affect um, high school and colleges in the area. Well, how is it fair to the victims, the victim's family, and even Brian Koberger himself, if they're ready to go to trial and it's October, is it fair to all those people that they have to wait now? Like, what is it? Seven, eight months, nine months until until summer? Yeah, it's not. If the defense team can stall it enough so that way it becomes a problem with the summer, you know, uh, scheduling, then there's got to be a change of venue. Even the judge brought it up. Judge Judge said, and the prosecution said that, and he said, well, we might be looking at a change of venue type of thing then. And, and the prosecution guy was like, no, well, this, that, and the third. And I, I don't think he understands that it's not just about the logistics of the town. There, there are people involved in this, people who lost loved ones and a person who, you know, his life is on the line. I mean, you can't uh, understand probably the amount of stress. I can't understand the stress that he's probably going through, you know, knowing that his life is, is on the line, whether he did it or not, you know, it's causing him stress too. You know, it's, it's, it's across the board, you know, for justice's purpose, uh, I, I would prefer this to happen a lot sooner than later. And I think if they gave him, you know, the change of venue, I wouldn't be surprised if, if this court case would have moved along a little bit quicker. You know what I mean? I mean, it might have because they, they wouldn't have the excuse of, you know, trying to work around the high school and the college schedules. You know, that's the excuse for now for this, you know, for not be, have, being able to have it during this time of year. But this summer, they're saying they're not even going to be ready for this summer. That They want another whole year and a half just to be able to prep. Well, they said that maybe the earliest would be March of 2025. And if they get the change of venue, then that might be that might be plausible, mm-hmm. or even sooner. Right. So that well, just to kind of get back. We kind of went off there, but to get back on track, you have the three DNAs that are in the house. I find it suspicious that Ann Taylor was super specific where one was inside of a glove outside of the house, and not so specific where the other two were outside of you know a vague description that they were in the area of where the bodies were. You know, in my opinion, you're probably going to describe that as close as you can to the bodies, right? You know, if if it's on the opposite wall, 20 feet away, you're not going to say it's on the opposite wall, 20 feet away. You might say it's in the area. You know, if it was, um, you know, five feet away, you're probably saying that it was in close proximity to the bodies, right? You know, and if it was on the bodies, just like she put it, that it was inside the glove, you're probably going to see that it was on the bodies. And so I I think that it's going to end up being... A situation where those DNAs were found and it was unlikely that they were involved based on their their location. And then you also have to look at resources, right? There's more than one case going on at the, at a time, right? The world doesn't stop just because, you know, this situation happened. The FBI require, you know, their services for other agencies throughout the United States. And so their their, their resources are limited. That's one of the reasons why they have a policy in which they don't do the IgG stuff until until law enforcement has exhausted their techniques. It's not a law. It's not a thing that if they were to do it, that somebody's going to get off on it, right? Because it's not illegal. It's yeah. just their policy and it's their policy so they can control, you know, the, the resources because it is limited. And so I know a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I want to test this one and that one and that one and that one. Okay. You know, if the first one comes back, that's real close to the bodies or or underneath the body, you know what I'm saying? On, on a, on a, a knife sheath and that one comes back to somebody and 
And what do we know? We know that there's a white vehicle without a front license plate driving around in the area. And this person just so happens to have a white vehicle without a front license plate driving around in the area. You know, uh, Dylan said she saw a guy that was about six foot or taller or her height or taller. And, you know, medium athletic build. This guy's not short. He's not fat. So although it's a vague description, it doesn't exclude him. Doesn't, but, you know, when you really look at it, that's a good description of his body type. I mean, mm-hmm. at a college town, you're going to have a lot of kids that, that, that seem size. It'd be more difficult, but I don't know. Yeah, but you got to narrow it down. It's not just their height and weight. You can't just look at all of them and say, hey, you know, we have we have 500 kids that match that height and weight. Well, out of those 500 kids, how many of them have access to a white Elantra? Yeah, out, of, yeah. out of them, you know, where were their phones at? And, you know, um, out of those phones, which one can you tell they were somewhere else or do they have an alibi? So you can, can you can deduce it down to, you know, a, a certain fraction of a number of people that you can investigate. When it comes to the uh, the three DNAs, it's, it's probably irrelevant, you know. And once they hit on Brian Coverter and they saw who he was as far as, you know, his vehicle, where he lived, you know, once they saw his name and they say, all right, well, this guy lives in Pullman, you know, let's um, let's go look at the uh, Pullman, Washington cameras. Hey, sure enough, he's there at 2.50. Let's see what time he comes back at five o'clock in the morning. It's interesting. Where'd he go? And then you find out the next day he, he goes down south again probably, and goes to a Albertson or something like that and then comes back and turns his phone off in the area in which he was at the, you know, the day before when his phone went off again. This time he's there for a few hours. Now, what do you buy at the at the Albertson and all those other different places that he went? I bet you we're going to find out in trial. And wouldn't it be crazy if it's some sort of, you know, crazy uh, different items that if you put them together, turn into some sort of acid or something like that. The guy's smart enough to do so. Yeah. Would that look suspicious to you, Blue, if you found out that, you know, he went to one, you know, store and he bought three three items and then he went to another store about two other items and another store about something else and then you know when you put all those items together it creates some sort of chemical bath uh, i wouldn't be surprised because of what he knowledge he can hold yeah um but the area is so wooded i'm pretty sure you can hide it dig it under a tree and leave it there and they won't find it maybe i mean you you, you t- there's a chance that an animal will maybe but you know especially if it's clothes that he I'm assuming took off before he entered his vehicle. If uh, he clothes, buried yeah. those, yeah, if he buried clothes, those, it would be a smart thing to to get rid of the clothes. But the knife, I mean, those acids have to be pretty strong to dissolve right. a knife that size. So I would say he probably buried it. So. Yeah, I would assume the knife. Yeah, but the clothes, you know, I would have thought maybe a fire, but people are aware something horrific happened. Right? They're probably looking out for smoke in case somebody is lighting a fire in the area. You know what I'm saying? That's what I would have done. You know what I mean? I had, you know, look in the air, see if you see any, any, any kind of fires or bonfires throughout the day and the night. And if you do, you well, know, go check out what it is. Now, obviously he's out there in the middle of nowhere and maybe perhaps it's too far for somebody to see, but if it's not and somebody sees it, he's, he's busted, he's done. I don't know. Maybe he bought cement. That would be, that's the other thing too. He bought shovels, cement, and, uh, and I don't know, some other stuff. Would you be suspicious at that too? Oh, definitely, definitely. But as big as the area there is, he wasn't trying to conceal like a remain. So mm. I, I would think it would be something more like just getting rid of the clothes. What if he, you know, threw it away at the Albertsons trash can before and it's at the landfill? That would have been easier than discarding it somewhere in the woods and somebody finding it in another whole different city. Trash, nobody knows that they're looking for a guy. He disposes it there and they get rid of it for him. 
Yeah, it's possible. You know, I mean, what we do know is, to our knowledge at least, they haven't found it, right? Yeah. Do you think that's going to be a problem when it comes to trial that they didn't find the knife? No. No, yeah, me either. No, there's a lot of people that got, have been convicted without the weapon. I mean, look at that guy that they, I think, convicted in Colorado. They convicted him without a body. You know, they never found the, the, that kid that we that we did the story on that one time. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. They just saw the, the cell phone footage. And speaking of footage, transitioning to the next thing that the, uh, you know, Brian Kovacs defense team are arguing, and that is the vehicle, the, identifi- the identification of the vehicle. You know, when was it changed from a 2013 to 2015, right? What tapes are out there that show this vehicle? Um, you know, those type of things, right? So well, let's start off with the first part, the 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. That's, that's what they were saying, right? Why do you think that they kept it narrowed down to that base model or that year model blue and not, not included, you know, the 15 to 16? Uh, maybe the first, I want to say that maybe the first uh, picture they saw. On the cameras were a little bit blurry, and they just saw the the, the Hyundai uh, body style, and then they they went for an older model. But I think um, maybe it could also be to throw off the the killer. Like, well, they're not looking for my car; it wasn't even my year. I don't know. It could be a, some different tactics they're using. Okay, what about this? You know, I think that what that probably tells me is that there's the footage isn't as good as what's in Pullman because I think it's when they went to Pullman when they figured out that it could have been a 15 or a 16, and then they probably went back in and confirmed it with the Mo- Moscow footage. So the Moscow footage is probably mostly like green cam and security footage that doesn't capture everything. You know what I mean? Um, there, we have some, we have that Linda Lane footage that has cars parked right in front of it. You can't see the license plate and it's parked. Yeah. It's not moving and it's right there because of the reflection. Now, you know, police cams and, and those type of things that, um, are designed to record license plates at night and take pictures of them. Uh, those things are going to be able to show his license plate. And it sounds like based on his, you know, what we know and where he traveled through, that in Moscow, he kind of stuck to the neighborhoods and areas where there wasn't those traffic cameras. Yeah. And in Pullman, he really didn't care. And he drove through them. And I think that's where they probably also got his license plate. Now, here's the thing, though. I was going to say, I think that the 2011 and 13 were like hubcaps. What did he put on some steelies, right, so that it looked older? You know what I mean? Like a car without the hubcaps. And then swap it back out for the wheels that he had on it uh, beforehand. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. I mean, my guess is as good as years why he used his own car you know what I mean? oh as far as why he used his own car is because yeah. that's the smartest thing to do regardless of i mean unless you're super wealthy and you can purchase one under the table somewhere some far away and and take out the vin number go in there and scratch out all the stuff all right and then afterwards you know destroy all the vin numbers and all the locations and then after the crime go burn it up if you if you don't if you don't have that ability to do that to go and purchase one and somewhere else bring it all the way back and and do those things to it you know if if you go out there and and steal one you got to get away with two crimes and if you get busted with one you're going to get busted for the other it's going to be pretty easy to con- connect those dots you borrow a car uh, you better hope that person don't talk and if it was Brian Koberger that committed this crime Who's he borrowing a car from in that area? It didn't sound like he had very many friends. You know, I mean, you can rent a car, but there's a paper trail and police are going to go check that out too. So you really have no choice if you're Brian Koberger in that situation. But back to this. So the identification of the car, when and where uh, it was changed, I don't think is going to matter as much when it comes down to trial because they're going to ask an expert, could this vehicle be a 2013 to 
13 to or 2014 to 16. And I highly doubt, I doubt that that Ann Taylor is going to find an expert that says, no, that's a, that's an 11 through 13, you know? Yeah. I think once they go through more of the footage and they, they have better ideas of what it was, but she's not even denying the car right now that I've seen. Um, she said that there's that the, the vehicle that they used to identify one of the, uh, the vehicle was traveling the wrong direction at the wrong time, something of that nature. They're going to have to come in and say that it, it, it can't be one of those. And I find that to be very hard. I, I think that uh, there's no way that that's going to be able to come back because, yeah. you know, they're going to have footage of that vehicle doing that three point turn right there in front of the victims, like that, that King and Queen Road um, intersection. That is going to say a lot. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the, just by them knowing they had, he did a three point turn, mm-hmm. that means they know that something recorded it because i mean he could have said he went down the street and did a u-turn at the, at the dead end yeah so that, that that piece of footage there is going to tell a lot and the prosecution just has to get a an expert or two that look at cars and say is it possible that it's this car you know a 15 or a 16 they say yeah it's not like it's <laughs> it's not like it, it magically changed right like the the footage magically changed you know when it was put out there and say oh no it was a 13 they said it was a 13 then now they're changing it. It's the same footage. It's just somebody else looking at it from probably a different perspective and, and maybe seeing something that wasn't saw a scene at the first time. And that, that would be crazy, right? If if um if he did oh, something. I want to answer that question before you put that down. And then let's put up the, why is there only one footprint? Surely the unaliver has two feet, right? Well, it says that there was one latent footprint, right? In latent meaning that they can make out what it is. Right. The other, it doesn't mean that there wasn't any other footprints. There could have been other footprints in there, but they couldn't make out the diamond pattern, right? Or there, or there could have been other markings that couldn't, wouldn't be able to tell that it was a footprint. Like who's to say that the footprint that they do have is the entire foot. It could be a partial print of the foot that shows, you know, the sole, you know, other, other prints that were possibly in the house, maybe they were smudged and you couldn't see what they were. So it said it was only one latent footprint, not necessarily that there was only one print in the house. We had a, uh, and this is going into our next topic that we're going to be talking about, which is Ann Taylor asked for training records of a couple of different, you know, officers. There was a hearing back, I think either June or July. I have it pulled up. We'll watch it. And um, what do you call it? We'll go back into it. We'll listen to what she says. But the question was some of these training or, or the training of some of these officers. And we had the question in the comment section. So let me bring up that question. So it says AT specifically asked for two ISP records, the same officers involved in the Moore case. We'll go back and we'll listen to what she asked for. She asks for information on two ISP officers. Yes, but they don't name anybody. So everything is sort of assumption because we don't know exactly who these two were. All right. Ann Taylor speaks again on the police training records. She, uh, the three she's asking for had critical various um, stages. One of the officers did a Spellman search for the 2011-13 Hyundai Elantra to give the FBI to look through. Uh, the, the same officer interviewed witnesses from the scene. So this is the other thing. You know, She's also saying the same officer and this officer did this and this officer did that. What Ann Taylor says is there are two ISP officers and one uh, Moscow police officer that they want training records on, that they were a part of interviewing witnesses, this, that, and a third. It doesn't mean that all of them did that. In fact, it could have been just one of them. And because they were bunched up together, you can say what she said. Like, for instance, I've saved somebody's life before with with my job. Big Blue, have you? 
Okay, I thought so. Uh, I'm not sure if Hyman has, but let's just say he hasn't. Now, um, Hyman has done, he, he's driven a forklift. Have you ever driven a forklift? Yeah, I'm forklift certified also. I've never driven a forklift. I haven't joined the military. I joined the military. Did, have you joined the military? No. All right. So if I were to say that, you know, the guys on the Drunk Turkey Show, you know, they've been in the military, ex-law enforcement, you know, they save lives. They can drive a forklift and, you know, all this other stuff that we mentioned. It kind of sounds like all of us can do all those things, but that's not accurate, is it? No, it's not there you go. That's the first thing. One of the officers did, a, did the search. This officer followed up on some key witnesses in the case. The officer signed a blank agreement. Uh, this officer handled it and collected evidence. And, and I asked for links of where they did this, because if they handled and collected evidence or they, you know, collect if they collected the evidence, there would be the evidence receipt. We've seen the evidence receipts. Um, she says it's Toolman and, and somebody else. I can't remember off the top of my head. Those weren't the guys that were on those evidence receipts for the warrants or anything. I didn't see their names anywhere. So I just wanted to bring that up. I mean, it could be, maybe they are, and I just haven't seen them, but I asked for them. Nobody has been able to provide them to me yet. Uh, the second officer did an interview with a key witness who's expected to testify when this case goes to trial. This officer is also mentioned specifically, or this officer also mentioned a specialty of working with victims, trauma victims, and those training records are very relevant. So here, here's the thing, though. She does ask for these things. She says those things, unfortunately, and, and you guys will hear them. Some people that, you know, follow a certain narrative, they, they put the pause button at a certain spot and you don't get to hear the response. But um, let me continue this real quick. Uh, the officer also mentioned, OK, no, I already read that. The interview of this key witness is one of multiple interviews to key witness and various officers. And there's a lot of information, the various information that's going to come out at trial. We'll see. This officer may be subpoenaed by the defense at the time of trial. They have to have a purpose, but okay. I mean, this is also maybe, you know, again, this is all speculation. And, and this isn't coming from somebody on the defense team either, right? This is coming from somebody in the chat who's hearing it from somebody on YouTube somewhere that, oh, they're going to do this. <laughs> Let's see. Because right now, when it comes to Brian Koberger and the stuff that they uh, intend to show that he's innocent, comes from cross-examination of witnesses, not necessarily them bringing up a witness, but we'll get to the witness part. The third officer did multiple, multiple interviews, dozen or so, many of them after the arrest of Mr. Koberger. This officer also interviewed key witnesses in the case. This officer attended autopsy proceedings. I do know that one officer did attend an autopsy proceeding that was one of the tollmen or one of those guys. Uh, but again, how does that, how does him attending that autopsy affect the case? I don't get it. I mean, him attending them, uh, it could be a training thing. It could be a lot of things. Yeah. You know, you know, he may not have ever been to an autopsy before. And so there was one being performed and sometimes other officers get to go. Like, for instance, I've been to one uh, and I had nothing to do with the case. It was just because I was, you know, I had never been to one and I wanted to go you know, when I was an officer. What's up, Big Blue? No, so it could be just part of the training, too. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get shown, OK, you've never had a an autopsy of a you know murder victim there's multiple stab wounds this is what you can look at this you know identify certain right. things um no you're right it could be as that as well officer followed up on tips made decisions about tips that were given to law enforcement collected evidence made decisions about the case and the state is going to re represent against mr koberger uh talk to key witnesses how how they do their job and how they were trained to do their job and what they relied on is incredibly important when they take the stand, they will say, based on my training and experience. Well, first and foremost, you're assuming they're going to take the stand. And second and third or second and third, you also have to get to them to say 
based on my training and experience, which would require them doing something, right? Like if, because, yeah. well, you know what? Let's go into what, let's just watch, let's listen to the, the deal there. Give me a sec. Even at that, when they bring them onto the case, they can say, they're going to be asked what they did and what they didn't do, and it'll come out on there. Yeah, hold on. let's just listen to the hearing so we know what we're talking about. Your Honor, we would request that we start on defendant's motion to compel and second motion to compel. I believe the third motion to compel will be heard on a different date. True. As it relates to the two motions to compel, and I'll present my arguments whenever the court's ready, but I can direct the court exactly to the numbers in those motions to compel that are still up for discussion today in the request of the report. Excellent. I'm ready. On the original motion to compel, we are only seeking the court to order number six be complied with in that motion, in that particular motion. Okay. Let me take a look at that. Number six. And so this is, uh, this is the motion to compel discovery that was filed on May 4th, number six, and that is request number 160. That is for request number 160, and that was in the second supplemental discovery request. Okay, thank you. All right. And we're getting to that meeting. Uh, so it broke okay. up. Number six. Number six on that one. On okay. the second motion to compel, Your Honor, we are needing the court to order on request number one, number four, number five, and I think that we have a plan for the other numbers, so those would be the three we need the court. Discovery is everything. Not necessarily. Discovery is everything used against the client or that can exonerate the client or, or the defendant, right? That's that's what discovery is. If there's something that doesn't pertain to the case or doesn't come up with anything to the case, there's something called relevance that comes into play, right? That has to be relevant to the case relative to Koberger and relative to uh, you know the victims and stuff. You know, if they had a guy who uh, said that, you know, let's just say it's Jack Showalter. You know, if he said that, you know, I left, you know, after two o'clock, you know, I left, uh, you know, somebody picked me up and we went, you know, I went and my brother picked me up and or whoever, my cousin, we took off home to Boise or whatever. And there's video and evidence of him. Well, one, they just cleared me, can't be at two places at once. But how does that, how does him leaving town and going to Boise exonerate Brian Koberger? It doesn't. How does it implicate Brian Koberger? It don't. So will the defense get all the information that they got on Jack Showalter? No, they wouldn't. It's not relevant to the case. Does that make sense to you, Blue? Yeah, they only would get it like if they request it. For what? If it's not relevant, they just waste more time. Which goes back to like me saying, like when when this person said that you know this person's going to have to say based on my training and experience. Well, it depends on what they're involved in, you know. And and you can you can request this person to go up there, but the questions are going to be relevant to what they did. And if all they did was take tips, what, what training records would you be, you know, required to look for, for the tips? I mean, that's, there's not any specific training for collecting tips. No, I mean, they probably have a few training videos, but the rest is on the job knowledge. Yeah. I mean, you fill out a form and they tell you what to, you know, they show you what to grab and what information, but like that's stuff in the academy. That's yeah. everything. There's not, it's not special training. You know what I mean? It's not special training. Like for instance, blood splatter. And how that, you know, goes on a wall. And that's special type of training. Let's continue this. Thank you. Just wanted to make sure we're looking at the same page. Okay, number one is request one. Number four is request 23. I'm sorry, Your Honor, it's number two, request four. Okay, I apologize. Number two, request four. Okay. And you said number five? And number five, which is request 109. Okay, thank you. All right. And that's the second motion to compel discovery. Correct. All right. 
Do you want to make an argument about those? I would love to. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Your Honor, first, I want to start with talking about the discovery process. As the court knows, we have been representing Mr. Koberger since the very end of December of 2022. And during the course of the last several months, there has been a lot of discovery that's been requested and a lot that's been supplied. I come here asking the court to compel discovery. I'm seeking an order directing that we receive this discovery. I'm not seeking any other kind of sanction. I don't come here saying that the prosecutor has done something wrong. I come here saying that there are things that we have a disagreement about whether I should get them or when I should get them. And we seek a court order to assist us in this regard. Yesterday, we filed an exhibit that related to our motions to compel. And the purpose of that exhibit was to show the court how the discovery is coming in and what we are weeding through to try to find the information and to let the court know that our office is making extraordinary efforts. Mr. Koberger's team works nonstop. And when we... So basically, and kind of now that what we know is that they're getting an extraordinary amount of evidence at a time against their client, right? She talked yeah, about yeah. the amount of evidence that they have against their client. Uh, Big Blue, I got a question for you, man. Does more evidence or a lot of evidence typically mean a weaker or stronger case against somebody? I want to say it makes a stronger case against you. They got more evidence against you per se, just about you. But if it's evidence about the whole case, they, it, it's hard to tell. You know what I mean? Yeah. If they're going through all the 10,000 tips that they received and some of them are way out there. And that's why they should have a, a team that works for them. Their paralegals do all that sifting and only bring them the good information. Right. That's not, I'm just saying, like, I don't know how she's going to have a team of paralegals. Oh, they do, the man. It's, it's the amount. There's just yeah. so much evidence against them. Like 51 terabytes, there's so many visual evidence. And the thing is, he's not helping them, right? Like they they said a while ago, when it came down to his alibi, uh, she said that he takes long drives and the judge said, that's not really an alibi. And she said, well, that's all that he's been able to, that's all he's told us. And it was kind of the dig at the prosecution because the prosecution hasn't, or hasn't been able to release, or wasn't, especially at the time, the IgG information, because that was done by the FBI and he didn't have, he didn't have it. It just wasn't in their possession. They weren't giving it up. And that's what she said. He said, you know, we just don't have it. And her statement back was, well, we just don't have it. Well, fast forward to this last trial. And she said that there's still, when it comes to the alibi, that they'll wait until, you know, they can cross-examine some witnesses, which is another reason why they want to stall. They're hoping that, you know, with time, the witnesses could forget some things or whatever, not be as accurate. Well, anyways, I digress. I'll go back. There's just so much evidence against him. It's just stacked up against him. It doesn't really mean that it's less evidence. And I saw somebody say 400 witnesses means no witnesses, not necessarily. You know, that that's also a statement that was made by Ann, Ann Taylor. It wasn't a, a statement made by the prosecution that they have 400 witnesses. Okay, so, even, even if they did have 400, 400 witnesses, they pretty much just have to interview two a day and they would go through all the witnesses within a year. That's just two. I'm pretty sure they can go through a lot more than two witnesses well, a day. They, nobody wants to talk to them. They keep slamming the door in their face, though. And, and that's the other problem, right? Nobody wants to talk to them. So that tells me that all those witnesses are not probably in Koberger's favor. You know, not people that are going to be saying anything good about them. And, you know, people that don't want to get involved in it, you know, from that aspect. And that's that simple. Check them off the list of non, uh, non, non-compliant. Mm-hmm. Send them a, you know, subpoena to the court. Yeah, that's all you can do. Subpoena them and then and then you'll have your moment to question them in front of judge Everybody and jury. Else. So look, it'd be, be nice if you can talk to them, just have a few questions. Now we'll just subpoena you and we'll see you in court or you can deal with your consequences. Yep. That's, all they, that's what they tell anybody anyways. Yeah, 100%, dude. 100%. Nobody wants to talk to them and they got a lot of work coming in and they can't go through it all and there's no index. They're, 
the, the, the prosecution didn't give the defense a playbook as to what they're doing with the case and how they plan on trying Coburger, which is kind of weird, man. You know that you're not going to get that. You know you're not going to get, you know, everything handed to you like, oh, you know, this is the first thing we're going to do. And then next we're going to use this evidence and this is how we're going to use it. You know, we had a defense attorney come out on the uh, on the show not too long ago. I, I recommend going back and checking it out. You can check it out on the Brian Coburger Idaho 4 uh, playlist that we have, you know, look for the lawyer. And he said it before when he was a defense attorney that that's how they do it. It's a tactic from the, the prosecution. It's something that's done. You know, the defense has their their tactics, too. And so it happens. And that's something that they are. He already knows that he's probably going to have to do. It's very rare that they give him some sort of playbook. So Yeah, they're not going to say, oh, this is what, what we're going to use 100 percent because you're going to shoot it down. So they, they're going to throw as many curveballs at you as they can. Same way they throw curveballs at them. And now the main thing is like the terabytes. I mean, it's it's like anything, man. It's a, it's a puzzle. You have to put it together yourself. If you don't have the competence of putting it together yourself, then yeah, I know you have a team. Your team can help you. And I guess she's not much of a team player if they can't put it together within a year. Uh, Afton asked, the defense isn't entitled to the prosecutor's work product, is it? What do you think, Will? I don't think so. Like work no. product, does that mean like, like what they're going to do? Yeah, I don't think they are. Nah. I, said that, I think they're only privilege to the information that they might use mm -hmm. the witnesses that they're going to use because they have to be able to cross-examine them and but they're not going to say what questions we're going to ask them what order you know that's the stuff they have to figure out themselves and you know it's kind of like um they, the, the only thing that gets handed over to the defense is information or evidence that um, they plan on using or shows that brian Koberger is guilty or evidence and stuff that exonerates him, right? Like for instance, like a lie detector test. If Brian Koberger would have failed a lie detector test, it's inadmissible. You can't use it against him. So you know, it's not it's not something that's in favor of Koberger. So you know, if he passed it, then he can use it. He can bring that up, like, hey, I passed the lie detector test. All right? It, it's something that would sort of exonerate him to a certain extent. You know, those things aren't that accurate, but he can use it as evidence in his, you know, for him. But if it's not being used against him, they, they, they really don't have to give it to them, which is kind of like the IgG. The IgG wasn't used against Brian Koberger. It was used to find him. It was used to point out who he is, but it was not used against him. Anybody can point out somebody. Right. I can call I can call the San Antonio Police Department and say Big Blue is doing some illegal stuff in his basement. Go arrest him. Are they going to go beat the door down and arrest him? No, not at all. They got a case. They got to go watch and figure out if it's true or not. You know, maybe even talk to them. Come find my basement in Texas. <laughs> Eighty percent of the homes here don't even have one. Right, right. You got to build a case. Same thing with the IgG. The IgG doesn't point at Coburger. They didn't do a direct DNA match test. They didn't get the IgG uh, the FBI or Authorum Lab did not get the DNA and match it to the DNA that was on the sheath. You know, they didn't test it. So they aren't, that's not a 100% match. They can't say with 100% certainty that Brian Koberger was the guy. They can only say, hmm, you can look in that direction. Now, law enforcement has to go and build the case, which they did. You know, they looked up uh, the warrants that they already had uh, for the the phone towers. They probably expanded those warrants. So different, you know, expanded the radius and the time and saw that Koberger turned his phone off, looked at his background history, things like that. And... Sure enough, they were able to get a warrant for his cell phone data. They got that, and then they go and pull DNA out of his dad's trash, get his dad's DNA, 
it matches as the father of the suspect of the of the sheath. That was used for other warrants. That was used to arrest him. And that is in discovery, right? The familial DNA. People get all tied up with the familial DNA and the IgG DNA because the IgG builds a family tree and the familial DNA is a match to a parent or to the father, right? It's different. It's it's not, they didn't match the father through the tree. Yeah, I think some people think that. That's, that's, not how, that's not what happened. But let's continue this. All right, this is. We have reason to believe it exists. So it's, I, I wanted the court of counsel to be aware it's not a fishing expedition. These are real items that are really necessary to investigate this case and prepare Mr. Koberger's defense. So with that as the background and um, the frequent communication with the prosecutor's office to try to obtain the materials we need, we have come to an impasse in a few areas. And that's what brings us to court today. As the court knows, discovery is governed by statute 19, I believe 1309 and Idaho criminal rule 16. And the purpose of discovery is really to prevent an unfair trial, to prevent trial by surprise, and also to protect a charged person's rights to meet their defense. It protects their Sixth Amendment rights to have a sufficient um, and a prepared counsel, I should say, as we have a duty to investigate the case. So in preparing our case for Mr. Koberger, we've asked for several things that we still need. I'll talk first about request number six in the first motion to compel, and that stems from discovery request 160. It's training records. These are training records of three specific police officers. Your Honor, these we have not asked for training records for every officer that has had anything to do with the case. I would not want to stand here and let the court think that this is an exhaustive list of the officers that we might need training records for, but these are three officers that we've requested them for in the state has indicated they're not willing to give us the training work. These three officers are officers that have each conducted critical interviews with critical witnesses in the case, made decisions about the interviews, made decisions about evidence, and conducted other kinds of investigation. We seek their training records to understand their process. Those, the training records, Your Honor, they are records that we've been able to obtain from various police agencies in the past. In this circumstance, they're not records that I can find on my own. Um, these are not things that are on the internet. They're not going to just hand them over to me. The two of the officers that we've requested them about are Idaho State Police Officers. I have often received training records for Idaho State Police Officers in the preparation of other cases during the course of my career. They are imperative for us to understand the specialty in interrogating and interviewing people and for making the decisions that they made with regard to things taken as evidence in the case or things followed up on or not followed. That is the purpose for those records and we're asking the court to order the state to provide the training records for those. Well, it paused on, it, on its own anyways, but I wanted to stop that. You know, the, this is also in the perspective of the defense team. Right. The defense is the one that's saying that these are important. These witnesses that they talk to are important. It doesn't necessarily mean that's true. The the state or the, the Ann Taylor can say whatever she wants from her opinion. Right. In her opinion, these people are important. The people that she talked to are important. So she can say that doesn't mean it's true. The state has a has a response. The state can't lie either. That's perjury. Right. Everybody says, oh, Ann Taylor can't lie. So what she says is 100 percent fact. Well, neither can the state. Let's continue officers moving on then to our second motion to compel and what we are looking for is all right so real quick that was a training record did you hear specific officers big blue i said three officers and two are idaho police but did you say their name i did not hear the names yeah so it is assumed that it's gary tolman and i don't remember the other guy's name the narrative is that they were responsible in framing some guy right dr moore there was a situation where, and I, I, I kind of looked into it, right? There was a situation that this chiropractor, he was accused of killing another chiropractor who was shot in the head. And the, the officers went, they took him in for investigation and interrogation. And apparently he asked for a lawyer. These guys would leave and then they'd come back and they'd talk a little bit and he'd ask for a lawyer. So they'd leave and they'd come back. Apparently he didn't have a lawyer. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Me personally, I was never an investigator. So that part, I mean, I don't know. I don't know who gets him a lawyer if that's... You know, I don't think that's the police department's fault, you know, duty uh, to get him a lawyer. 
they had charged him. So I think he would have had to just wait until one was appointed to him. I think that's how it goes. Yeah, I think they they just um, um, they assign you one and then, but you choose not to talk no more. You know, they take you back to the cell. And no, I know that aspect. But what I'm saying is because I've seen. I've heard people say like, well, you know, you ask for a lawyer, they bring one and then you talk. And, I, and I'm trying to remember. But like I said, I was never I was never a detective. I was just a beat officer. But, yeah, I think that's how it goes. If you, if you want a lawyer, all right, they throw you back whenever you see the judge and they you know, find you indigent to get one. And then they appoint you one if you can. If not, then you got a way to go buy one. Now, from it is possible, you know, it is people can revoke their rights and decide to talk. Right. I, I read apparently uh, this Dr. Moore is suing. Uh, the department there because, you know, after he requested a lawyer a few times, uh, he confessed, right? Now, they don't, they, they say that the confession was coerced because he had asked for a lawyer and they wouldn't give him one. I don't think it's the department's responsibility to give him one, for one. And two, I think he was asking to speak to somebody specifically, the chief. And in those situations, the chief was telling him, and he had read him his Miranda rights and told him, if you, you know, you, you've asked for a lawyer, we can talk. You have to, you know, tell me. Um, that you want to talk. And apparently he said he did. But because, you know, he'd asked for a lawyer a few times, they they dismissed the charges. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he's innocent, that he didn't shoot the guy. It just means that they, they I think they failed to read his Miranda rights properly, which they were asking him some questions ahead of time and didn't read his Miranda rights until about midway. And so that's also why they, the, the case was thrown out. And I think this guy is suing them, but people are saying they framed him. That's not necessarily a frame job. You know, if people, you know, sometimes people go and they get arrested and they're innocent. They go to court and they prove or, you know, they find reasonable doubt and they get, they get, they go free. That's part of the process. I don't think they got that far with this guy. I don't, I don't know if they planted evidence. I think that they, the word was coerced a confession. And I think because I think his wife had a gun that was the same model as the one that was used to kill the guy. I don't know. The thing that happens, though, or the, the thing is involvement. These guys did something. Let's just say everything's true, right? The Brady, the, the Giglio, the, the whole nine yards, right? And it's these two specific ISP officers that she's refer referring to. It comes down to all right, what part of the case were they involved in? Now, she's saying that it was part of witnesses. Let's hear what the defense says they were a part of. I mean, the prosecution. The Mr. Thompson or Ms. Jennings? So, Ms. Hay was correct. Um, she has everything that the state has. All right, so here's where the defense is going to come. I mean, the prosecution is going to come in and talk about what the evidence that they have and the evidence that they've given to um, Taylor and Taylor and the defense team. And right now she said, yeah, she's been given everything that the state has. At that point, I mean, nobody's hiding anything. There's not some kind of grand conspiracy. They're both admitting that that's the case. In our possession. And we've worked diligently and consistently in getting her all the information that we have in a quick fashion. To date, um, we have discovered approximately about 13,000 pages of reports, 13,000 photographs, over 10,000 tips, and over 51 terabytes of audio video information. So this is the amount of evidence that they have and that they have turned over. We've heard about this towards the end of, you know, the last um, podcast uh, or the last hearing that they had. So we are down to just a few points of disagreement. Sorry, Mike. Oh, is okay if I yes, Yeah, that's fine. Thank, Thank you. First, um, with regard to item number six on the defendant's first motion to compel discovery, this involves training records of a couple of officers. Again, these are officers who the state would argue 
are not uh, material to the case. Um, they've interviewed other witnesses. Um, they wouldn't even be called by the state to testify at trial. Um, and the state objects to this because training records of specified officers aren't included within Rule 16. So these aren't even officers that they plan or intend on calling in uh, for trial. They don't intend on bringing them up. So if if they took samples of something and their names were on paperwork that they took evidence or they talked to certain witnesses and they filled out these reports that they did. So, I mean, they would have had to, because if not, then, you know, the defense wouldn't know about it. Right. So they must have had some sort of paperwork that they want their background information for. And if the state doesn't even bring them up to to talk to them, how are, you know, how's the defense going to get their information out of them that they're seeing is pertaining to the case. Now they can call them up as their own witness, But like I mentioned before, there's something called relevance and the questions have to be um, specific, you know, points specific. Like, for instance, they can't go into something uh, and say, like, all right, Blue, you're an X-ray technician. Uh, Can you tell me you know, how to do heart surgery and what your you know, what is your experience in heart surgery or do you have any training in heart surgery? Those questions have to be specific. If he didn't collect the knife and they go into saying, asking, what is your training? on on collection of evidence, the state is going to object and say relevance. He didn't collect anything and they're going to win that objection. And so back to the whole thing where it said, you know, the guy is going to say based on my training and experience, well, yeah, you got to get there. What are you going to ask that's going to have him say based on my training and experience that has relevance to the case if the state isn't even bringing them up as a witness? Yeah, I get it. They're just wasting time, but I mean, it, it could have a relevance to her. There's people that need to look into the background and look into every information so they can nitpick at everything to actually right. have something to, to get to. But right. that's a lot of extra work for, right. for something that she might not even use. But that, that's the way some lawyers work, man. Well, it's not so much that, dude. I think that they're trying to pull in these guys who are maybe are or have been under investigation for whatever happened with the whole Daniel Moore thing, right? Because they're, I think that that place is getting sued for you know, violating his Miranda rights. I think they're trying to get them involved into the case to try to hinder the case because of their involvement. However, if their involvement was merely taking tips, 10,000 of them, and none of them had anything to do with the case, there's probably a reason why they were only allowed to do those things. Now, I know one of them went to an autopsy and we spoke about that earlier, but according to, and like I said, the, the, the prosecution can't lie. They're saying the truth. They don't intend on bringing them up there. And they haven't proffered any reason um, as to why this would be needed for the preparation of their case. Again. All right. And they haven't asked, they haven't proffered any reason as to why uh, this would be needed for the preparation of their case. Now, I know that they gave a list of things as to why, but they're asking for specifics. Why hasn't Anne or the defense team responded to their request as to why they would need uh, this for the preparation of their case? How is it relevant? Yeah, they haven't said why, what they plan on doing with it. And, and, and Luna says that Tolson was at the autopsy. He was instrumental in framing Dr. Moore. Dr. Moore wasn't framed. He was coerced, apparently. That's what he's suing him. He, he, they didn't read him as Miranda rights. And after he asked for a lawyer, they continued to interrogate him. I don't understand what this whole framing thing. Did they plant evidence on him? I didn't read that in his lawsuit that he has against against the against that department. That's not in there. You know what I mean? I mean, unless he's just suing him for the Miranda part and not for planting evidence. Right. And and if Tolman went to the to the autopsy, to a autopsy, how does that autopsy or his representation in the autopsy affect the case? Did 
did he slip in the knife sheath at that time? Because I know the state forensic team were out there the day that this happened and collected that the day that this happened. Now we know that they didn't find DNA underneath the nails or, 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 you know, hair or any of those things on the body, right? Because if they did, they would have utilized that evidence instead of the DNA that was on the sheath. It'd be one thing if they found those things, then maybe, then maybe you'd have a point to say, Hey, this guy, coerced another person and forced them to confess, which is up for debate. The guy asked to speak to the chief of police multiple times. You can rescind your choice or decision, um, you know, uh, for a lawyer. But yeah. in the uh, they told him that they suspected him of doing it and they asked him questions without reading his Miranda rights. And so, yeah, you know, law is what the law is. Uh, cases cases dropped. Doesn't mean he's innocent either. Yeah, it's just I mean they can't try him with that evidence that they had. They had to figure out something else. And so there has to be relevance. Like, how do these guys affect this case, this specific case? I understand that they were investigator. They're getting sued for something somewhere else. But how did they, and how was they involved in this specific case? Because as far as I know, it was the FBI that identified the car. It was the FBI that did the IgG. It was the FBI that. Uh, that did everything. They handed Brian Koberger to the Moscow Police Department on a platter. It wasn't ISP. The only thing that ISP did, and it has nothing to do with those officers, is that they found, and this is the forensic team and the evidence crew, they found the, the DNA on the sheath and, and prepared and created a STR profile. Now, this isn't 1995 Gridlock, right? The movie with Tupac and, and that other actor, I can't think of his name off the top of my head right now, where they're both detectives and and they, you know, they're selling dope on the side and they end up killing some guy. Uh, that guy ends up being a, an undercover. So they go in, you know, find a homeless guy and they basically try to frame him. But in the process of doing all this, what they were doing is they're going to the evidence room, stealing drugs and taking the, uh, you know, the gun from a different case and using it. And so they got it. They kind of got in trouble. That's kind of how they got caught too. But in that scene or whatever they go. And I think it's like also in law and order. They, there's like this cage, there's this guy and he's signing things out and people sign a list and they walk to the back and there's all this evidence from all these cases just hanging out, laying around where anybody can grab them. It's not how it works. It's not, it's not how it is today. You know, maybe back in the day, that's how it was, but not anymore. You know, you, there's a lot of protocol that goes into recovering and transporting evidence. And there's a lot of checks and balances. And if one officer does something wrong, it's not just their career on the line. But it's their freedom as well. You know, a person can go to jail for, you know, tampering with evidence if they opened up the box. And if an evidence tech receives a box that has a tampered seal and they continue to work on it, they can get in some serious water too. So it's not like they're just, oh yeah, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back, let's do something highly illegal and, and hope we get away with it. This isn't a movie. This isn't how it works. Yeah, man. Um, it, there's a lot more protocols. I'm pretty sure. I think I've seen that everything is taped off and evidence sealed bags. So they're not tampered with. And no, framing does mean that they intentionally did something. Just because there's no good reason why does not mean framing. Luna Blue says, you know, Miss Drake is who suggested it was Dr. Moore to the police. It's most likely a case of tunnel vision and making the evidence fit. Framing doesn't have to be intentional, meaning there's no good reason. No, framing is intentional. Framing is intentionally putting something there to make somebody look guilty. They didn't, yeah. they didn't do that. They, is it tunnel vision? Probably. I, I don't know what the ballistics came back on the dude's wife's gun. Did it come back a match? Did it not? I, I don't know. Uh, I didn't get into it that far. All I know is it wasn't a job where they framed him. They, they asked him questions and he, he admitted to it and they forgot to do, or they didn't do the Miranda warning in the beginning. 
That's basically yeah. all it was. It's how he got off. These are investigators who have so we'd ask that you've um, rolled at this and they haven't proffered any reason um, as to why this would be needed for the preparation of their case. Again, these are investigators who have gone out and just interviewed some witnesses within the case. So we'd ask that you've um, rolled that this is with outside rule 16. Um, and I would just remind the courts that several hundred investigators have been involved in this case. Our concern um, with allowing um, training records for these few, which we can't understand why there's a substantial need for these particular ones, um, wouldn't open the door to us then having to go and get, obtain training records for these hundreds of investigative officers who've been involved, some of which are outside of our control. Moving on to the second motion to compel, as to item number one um, regarding cast information, um, Ms. Taylor has everything that we have. Um, I've also, um, that includes reports from MPD officers. Um, what she is seeking is a specific report um, from the FBI cast team, which I have indicated to her is in its final stages of review. Um, and we are anticipating receiving sooner rather than later. And as soon as we do, we will turn that over. Sooner than later. Well, I, I don't have a date certain, um, but within the next few weeks. Now, we haven't heard this argument since, so we can probably assume that they got that information and, and handed it over. I think, I think uh, Ms. Taylor wants a date. I don't have a date. I'm not <laughs> I've asked for a date, but um, that is not how the federal bureaucracy works. That's, uh, how about we say something like um, July 14th, unless there's some reason yes. that they can't get that to you? No objection. Okay. Is that okay, Ms. Taylor? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. And then um, the state has substantially complied with request number four, which is the same types of information, but related to the identification of the vehicle. Um, would ask for the exact same date certain of July 14th, only to obtain, if there is one, a potential report that's outstanding. Okay. Is that acceptable, Ms. Taylor? Yes, Your Honor. And again, I mean, if there's some hitch in that, I mean, we can, we can explore that and see what we need to do to fix it. Nothing further. Okay. I think that takes care of everything. Thank you, Ms. Jennings. Uh, anything to respond to, uh, Ms. Taylor? Yes, Your Honor. I um, want to be heard a little bit more on the police training records. I am aware that over 120 officers were involved in the investigation in this case. I am not asking for all 120 officers. I will tell the court that likely there are other officers' training records that I will want. This is within Idaho Criminal Rule 16. These are records and documents and objects that may have information relevant to Mr. Koberger's investigation and defense. These are records that are likely of witnesses. Whether or not the state calls them, they are likely to be witnesses. The three that I'm asking for now, they have critical roles at various stages. One of the officers did a Spillman search for 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantras um, to give to the FBI to look for one of them. That same officer assisted in the search for one. This same officer interviewed witnesses. So the guy went and looked up a list of white Elantras and handed them to the FBI. And he went out there looking for white Elantras, like all the other 120 officers that were there. I think I'm siding so far with the prosecution as to relevance. From the scene of 1122 King Road on the 13th of November. So one of them was there to interview one of the, now which one was it? Was it one of the ISP officers or was it the Moscow police officer that arrived on scene? I highly doubt it was the ISP detectives who weren't there on scene that day. So it's probably the Moscow police officer that arrived on scene, right? He probably talked to somebody there and said, you know, what happened? What's going on? And sealed the scene off or, or even was one of the backup officers that arrived there. And one of, one of the victims could have easily just come up to him or one of the witnesses or Hunter Johnson, Bethany Dillon, uh, somebody could have easily just come up to him and said, Hey, uh, you know, what's going on? What, what do we expect? And, and the guy could have easily just said, you know, we're doing an investigation and that would suffice for what she's saying in this, you know, in this deal here, she's not being super specific. She's saying that now it could have been more, it could have been as simple as that to back it up a little bit. 
they had critical roles at various stages. One of the officers did a Spillman search for 2011 to 2013 under Elantra's um, to give to the FBI to look for leads. One of them, that same officer assisted in the search for one. This same officer interviewed witnesses from the scene of 1122 King Road on the 13th of November. This officer did follow up with some of the key witnesses in the case. So this is definitely the Moscow police officer that did all these things, not the ISP, because the ISP, uh, I don't remember when they got there, but I don't think it was November 13th and they were doing interviews. Uh, I believe it was Blake who interviewed like Jack Decor and, and, and Dylan that day. Um, and he went back out there. You know, nothing says anything about the ISP officers being there that day. There's nothing that says that they were there that day. This officer signed an Ada County lab agreement and this officer handled and collected evidence. The second officer that I seek the information from did an interview with a key witness that's expected to testify when this case goes to trial. This officer also mentioned a specialty of working with victims and trauma victims. I think those training records are very relevant. The interview of this key witness was one of multiple interviews of this same key witness by various law enforcement officers. There is a lot of information in the various interviews that are, that's going to come into trial. This officer may well be subpoenaed by the defense to come to trial. That person's training records are very relevant. Why aren't the other ones being subpoenaed then? If, if you have such a hard you know, case to get this one guy subpoena. And there's enough evidence there for you to show relevance to subpoena, which I do, I do agree with her on that one. You know, if, if there was an officer that did speak to a witness, then yeah, they, they'd have to show what, what, what training they have in taking testimony, right? Now they don't have to show what training they have in, in um, something completely outside of the scope of that, like blood splatter or cyber crimes, right? It's specific to what they're talking about, which is taking up notes from witnesses, which is just the training you get from the academy. The last officer did multiple, multiple interviews. I think a dozen or so. Many of them after the arrest of Mr. Koberger. So this guy interviewed people and sometimes after the arrest of Koberger. I mean, this could be just some guy going and knocking on places at the apartment complex. Hey, did you know this guy? What do you know about this dude? Right. No, none. All right. Next door. What did you hear about this guy? It doesn't mean that they're like specifically doing anything in this case. ISP doesn't come up with anything when it comes to, you know, this case, as far as in the probable cause affidavit outside of creating the STR profile, which was done by the state lab, not necessarily the police officers that were out there that day or shortly after. This officer also interviewed key witnesses in the case. This officer attended the autopsy proceedings. This officer followed up on tips. This officer made decisions about the tips that were given to law enforcement. And this officer also collected bits of evidence. Those functions that police officers make daily in their job. Collected bits of evidence. They did it. So this guy was on the phone line and they want his, they want his train records because he was on the phone line. I mean, I, the autopsy. All right. What was his involvement in the autopsy? You know, if his, if his involvement was, you know, he was investigating it and, you know, then, yeah, I don't think he's trained in doing an autopsy. I don't think he's trained in reading an autopsy. Probably went just to go watch. You know, I get it. The defense got to do his job or their job. At the end of the day, none of this says he's innocent. This is all like, you know, uh, technicality stuff, which is unfortunate if you if you're wanting a killer to go free off of a technicality. It's, but in this situation here, there, there's nothing there that I have heard that says that they had major involvement in this case. Nothing at all, to be honest with you. Maybe the autopsy one, but I don't see how somebody can frame Koberger from an autopsy. It'd be one thing if they found his DNA on the bodies or under the nails or, or you know, teeth marks or something at the autopsy. If something was found that pointed towards Brian Cobber, Koberger at the autopsy, then yeah, but nothing did. I mean, unless when nobody was looking, he, he, he added some K-bar knife wounds or something. It's so dumb.
but yeah. They make decisions about a case that later comes to court. They've made decisions about the case the state's going to present against Mr. Koberger. They talked to key witnesses, how they do their job, how they were trained to do their job, and what they relied on is incredibly important. When they take the stand, they will say, based on my training and experience, Idaho Criminal Rule 16 talks about witnesses. This is information that the defense needs to conduct its investigation and preparation. It said ISP investigators. And if you go and uh, Luna asked, wasn't it Blaker's exhibit that said ISP found the sheath or was it told by them that the sheath was found? I believe it says uh, that he later found out something to the effect that ISP investigators, that there was a knife sheath there. The, the ISP investigators are, they're, they're, they're photographed. You see their pictures there. It says forensic investigator on their back. It's not Blaker or Toolman. I mean, not Blaker. It's not Toolman or the other guy. Those guys weren't there. You know, it was the forensic team. It said ISP forensic on their back of their shirt. It was a female, blue shirt, blue, blue, uh, 511s and police issue or not police issue, but police slash military style uh, boots. My God, not everything is a freaking conspiracy. You know, in fact, to be honest with you, like a 99 of a hundred times, most cases are pretty straightforward. I mean, the evidence is strong against him. The the stuff that he's saying, right? Let's see. The, the, the defense is asking for a grand jury, right? That got thrown out. The training records, right? If there was a Brady Gilgio or Gilio or whatever it was called issue, do you think that the judge would be ready to go to trial in, in 2024, the summer, right? They're arguing that, you know, the IGG, which is not even being used against him, uh, the identification of the car, uh, they're arguing that at first they were looking for a 2011 or 13. So what if they were looking for a 2011 or 13 Elantra? Does that footage show that that car can be a 2014 or 16? And if it does, it doesn't matter what they were looking for in the beginning. It just means that it doesn't exclude who he is, right? So who cares? The alibi, he don't have one. So he's hoping that he can get one off of cross-examination. Oh, there was uh, the other thing that they were arguing was, let me close this because it's about over already. The other thing they were arguing about was no body cam out of Pennsylvania, right? Oh, that looks suspicious. Well, here is uh, the sun, and this is their report. Uh, the U.S. Sun says, under arrest, Brian Koberger cop makes the serving admission about body cam footage from arrest, the University of Idaho suspect. All right, let's see. Koberger's defense team recently filed a motion to compel discovery and covering disturbing detail in the relation of his arrest. The motion was used to ask for the state of Idaho to provide access to all body cam and dash cam footage from the search and arrest of Brian Koberger in Pennsylvania. However, the state of Idaho denied the defense's access to the evidence as they requested, stating that it does not exist. In a court filing dated May 5th, state prosecutors said that the state is unaware of any body or dash cam footage beyond what has been disclosed and believes there is no body cam footage. Cops in Pennsylvania responded to the U.S. Sun's request for comment. They said, it is not out of the ordinary. Our department does not have body cameras yet. And our in-cash dams are only equipped on patrol vehicles. So they went in undercovers. Personnel at the scene included criminal investigators, special emergency response team members, and others not in patrol capacity. So it wasn't a big conspiracy. It wasn't like, oh man, we're not going to have body cams for this one specific arrest. It's all of their arrests in that small community. Typically when you have a small community, like uh, the area where he got arrested in, in the Pocono mountains, you know, he wasn't arrested in Philadelphia. He wasn't arrested in Pittsburgh. It was, uh, I can't even remember the name, name of the, the town he lived in, but it was in the Pocono mountains. It's not a big city there. And when you don't have a big city, sometimes you're not you know, equipped with some of the up-to-date technological stuff that's out there. All right. You have to do with what you have, you know, taxes out there in Pennsylvania, they go every which way and not always do they go to the police department. And so, you know, grants need to be done and, and things like that. And 
those are typically given to the bigger cities that have the more crime. You know, in the area where Brian Kovacar was arrested, I mean, I'm I'm not familiar, but I'm pretty sure the crime rate isn't as high as you would find in Pittsburgh or in, in Philadelphia or Chicago or San Antonio or any large metroplex. So the need for those type of equipment probably isn't there. Even if they didn't wear their body cams or they weren't on or whatever the case may have been, how how does Pennsylvania affect the case? You know, did they plant the knife sheath? No. Did they you know, manipulate footage to look like Brian Kovacar's car was driving around that night. No. Did they find the knife sheath or the knife at his house? Did they collect any evidence at his house? No, that's in our knowledge. Just because they didn't have body cam footage doesn't mean that something bad happened. It's insane how, how these dots, some people connect and, and there's no logic in between them sometimes. So there's no body cam and, and that's what they have. That's what, that's everything that Brian Koberger's defense team is arguing at this point. You know, they're still not ar- arguing a lot of these things. The training records has been cleared up because they're ready to go to court. Grand jury has been cleared up. I'm sure the IGG has, which is a futile point. Didn't throw out the uh, uh, the DNA. I know that they gave them permission to look at some of it. I think that's where they're at now, but it's not going to get, it's not going to go anywhere because it's not being used against him. It doesn't mean that the DNA is thrown out. I, I don't understand where people get that. If the IgG gets thrown out, that the DNA gets thrown out. It doesn't. The DNA and the STR profile were created first. In fact, I got the defense's own witness, Miss Vargas, to admit that the STR, or not so much admit, she was just telling the truth, that the STR profile is completely different than what they do at the IgG. They have nothing in common. And that in fact, well, in fact, that you need the STR to create the IgG. So if the IgG was done incorrect or corrupt, it doesn't affect what was happened before it. It only affects the information that you find after it. And what it affects is that you can't use it in court against the defendant, which this is information that they weren't using in court against the defendant to begin with. Big circle, snake eating its own tail. That's all the defense is doing. Now let's look at what we know that the prosecution has. They know that they got a, they have, they have Brian Koberger's DNA underneath the body of a victim on the sheath. They have his car or car that looks like his without a front license plate operating at around the time that the murders um, occurred. Uh, Brian Koberger had his phone off during that specific time in which that vehicle was active in Moscow, Idaho. You have the purchase of a K-bar knife receipt with no K-bar knife. It's missing. You know, you, you have his his locations and how he's been there 12 different times. Now, I know at the time of the PCA, all they had was his, you know, triangulation. And everybody was like, oh, 27 miles. Those things aren't very accurate. Like, well, they, they may not be, but your GPS locations are. And if Brian Koberger had his phone on to be connected to the network, most likely, you know, those apps in the background that you get that you give permission to give your location, those were probably on giving his location, whether it's, you know, that that running app that he used or, or Snapchat or TikTok or whatever, all of them, Instagram, all of them read your location. And so and, and that's down to a couple of feet. So that 27 mile radius information, it's not really going to be used in court. It was used to get an arrest warrant. So it's valuable. But when it comes down to court and it comes down to his locations, they're not going to bring that up. They're going to bring up the GPS location. They're also going to know why his phone turned off. You know, there's a record of it. You know, did his phone lose service? Did it go into airplane mode or was it turned off manually? That phone will know. There's no guessing. There's no, I think maybe his phone was real low in charge and this and that. No, all that's out the window. We're going to know exactly. And I think, I think he turned it off or put it on airplane mode manually. That's my opinion, my speculation. I obviously don't know for sure, but given the fact that 
you know, his phone lost connection in the middle of a city where connection would be strongest. He went through another city where connection would also be strongest and it never connected at all. And then it reconnected to a tower and stayed connected through uh, the area that was most rural and where you would think service would have an issue. So based on those parameters, I feel that it was intentional that that phone was was turned off. Now, you know, you can go in there and say my battery was dead. That's going to be, there's a record there of where the battery life was when that happened. And if he charged it, there's a record there. But although it was off, it was being charged during that time. So we'll know for sure. I just want to know how people are going to handle it if they find out and how they're going to explain it if he purposefully turned it off. Right, I'll go through some of these real quick and then we'll be calling it a show pretty soon. Right, why the gag order? So the gag order is to protect Brian Koberger. Um, if they come out and start saying all these things and all this information comes out about how the bodies were found and how horrific it was, or even the 911 tape, if you're able to hear the fear and the sound of, of somebody that found this horrific scene, you know, it, it's going to make Koberger look bad, right? And he can argue saying that that evidence was put out there in the media and it was uh, it tainted a jury. So all of the gag order is, is to protect Brian Koberger. The least, the less stuff that's out there, uh, the better for him. It doesn't benefit anybody else but Brian Koberger for there to be a gag order. And Angel D says, with well, a $5 super chat, thank you so much. People are asking you why backed out after saying there's no DNA in the car when you, and then you rethink uh, when, where do you stand on that respectfully asking? So <clears throat> what I had said, and I have the, and I have the option to change my mind on things, but when you think about it logically, if you think that it's reasonable for two girls to clean up, you know, an entire house within eight hours and not show any sign of it, except for one latent footprint, then what makes you think, and they have no experience, they're 19, 20 years old. What makes you think that a 28 year old with forensic experience who has his car for seven, eight weeks, what makes you think he can't clean up his car? It's more isolated, a smaller area. Nobody actively bled in his car. Nobody died in his car, right? It, the only blood that he would have taken out of that house would have been on his person, on his clothing. And if he took those off, then you're not going into the car with those things, with, with that blood on him. Now, we brought up a medical death investigator, forensic death investigator, I apologize, who has a master's degree in science and forensics. And she told us that, yeah. It's pretty easy to clean up a scene, especially if you have seven weeks to do so. And you know how bleach don't last seven weeks. Bleach lasts 24 hours. So in the situation with Dylan and, and Bethany, had they used bleach or a cleaning agent like that, you know, that night or that morning after the murders had occurred, that would have lit up like a Christmas tree. Now, Brian Koberger did that within the week in his house, in his car. You know, if you got the chance to test it out within a day or so, then yeah, it would have lit up, but it wasn't. It was weeks later. And when they got him, he was in Pennsylvania. So the vehicle had to be transported back to Moscow before it got processed. It had to be processed in and then it could be evidentially processed, meaning that, you know, they, they process the car in, they show for any damages, things like that, the numbers, any, any and everything inside of it. And then, you know, they'll also go through it forensically. So those are two different processes. So it could have been closer to eight weeks. When you think about it, by the time it took it from get to Pennsylvania to Moscow and, and everything else. So, yeah, that's why I'm not so you know hard on it. You know, I I said that would be and, and, and even at that, I never said that I, I thought he would be innocent. I said that was going to be a huge hurdle if there's nothing in there. I felt that there would be given, you know, the amount of victims and stuff. But again, I'm not an investigator. So I asked the forensic investigator those questions. I, I, I utilize their expertise in that, uh, in those questions. And I realize that, yeah, it's very plausible 
for somebody with the knowledge that Brian Koberger had, that he would not, you know, he would be able to clean up his vehicle and not leave traces of, of the cleaning, especially eight weeks later. I mean, like, again, I'll say this one last time. If you think that Bethany and Dylan can clean up a house in eight hours, what makes you think that Brian Cooper couldn't clean up a car in eight weeks? But, you know, some people don't want to hear that. His DNA matches the sheet. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, too. Like, where was the DNA located? It was located in the button snap. And how was the sheet laying? It was laying face down. So the button, the button snap was facing down behind that button snap is leather. Leather is typically waterproof. So if you got blood on it, it's not going to soak on into the button snap. It's going to leave the inside of that button snap very clean. The inside of a button snap isn't something that is like, well, let me rephrase this. If it was, if the DNA was found on the outside of the sheath, I can, I can say, all right, you know, that sheath grazed against something, whether it was a wall or Brian Koberger himself or a car that had Brian Koberger's DNA and it was able to transfer, but it didn't. It's inside the button snap. Like it, it's very difficult to get that DNA inside the button snap without being the one that touched it. It's also single source. So it's not mixed, meaning that if it was put in there, that it was put in there by somebody wearing gloves, which, you know, I don't think you anticipate on leaving something like that behind. And I mean, he probably cleaned it you know, touched it with his hand in the past and just didn't clean it as good as he thought he did. Now, as far as people saying, oh, there was no blood or DNA on it, there's nothing that says that that's true. You know, there, there's probably blood and DNA from the victims all over it on the back, you know, because there's a single source piece of DNA on the, on the snap, that doesn't mean that there's a single source of DNA. There's no other DNA. It just means that that specific DNA is not a mixture, that it's a single person DNA. You got to be careful who you listen to and what they say as far as you know, breaking down these things, because if they really are reading it real fast or don't know what they're doing, they're going to read that and think that there was only one piece of DNA on that entire sheath. And if that person is so tunnel vision that they think that that's the case based off that statement, they're probably giving you a lot of bad information across the board. And if you're spewing it back out, you're probably looking really bad. Just saying. I have my late husband's gay bar and the snap is very unhard. It's very hard to unsnap. Yeah, it is. It is. And if and if somebody purchased it, you know, they, they would probably open it and close it a couple of times or whatever and then clean it up. You know, I don't know if in April of 2022, Brian Koberger is like grabbing this K-bar knife and thinking right then and there, I got to touch this with with gloves and things like that. I don't think I don't think he really thought he was going to go through with something like this. You know, I think that this was something that was happening over time. And, you know, I think he lost it. I think he wanted to feel some things and prove that he was the smartest person and Wanted to create the largest unsolved crime. Created the largest crime, a high-profile crime, that's for sure. Uh, somebody wearing gloves used an eyedropper to plant DNA of a PhD student who wasn't even in CODIS. And, and it goes back to what I said last time. Why why plant DNA of Brian Koberger on this sheet, right? You know, people have said, oh, oh, well, it's because they had his information because he applied for law enforcement. Well, first and foremost, he applied at Pullman, not in Moscow. So that's the first thing. And second thing is, if you're going to find a fall guy, like, honestly, let's think about this. You have the guy that SWAT took out on December 13th, who can't defend himself, who threatened roommates and whose life had to be taken. And even if there was something wrong in that situation, because people have looked in that situation and said that they took his life in a wrong manner or whatever the case may be that they shouldn't have. And don't you think that would be it? either even more motive to blame this on that. So that way, um, you know, they don't look too much into that shooting. If it was a bad one, you know, that would be more of a reason to do it, to blame him for that one, but they didn't. 
Or how about the guy who tried to kill his wife and stab himself a couple of days after the murders that lived about four blocks away? He's also a convicted murderer. That guy's not good to, to pin this on. You have to go and look at your law enforcement applications to see who's good to, to arrest for this. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but <laughs> let's say that again. You're not looking at the murderer. You're not looking at the guy that had to be taken out by SWAT. You're looking at your applications for employment for a fall guy. And then people say, oh, it's because he's an outsider. Isn't the detective investigating him an outsider too? I believe so. He'd only been there for a little bit of time. One, they're very long. And also, I think the population there is like 20-some thousand, but isn't, ain't like only 3,000 of the population locals, like born there, raised there, not affiliated with the school? So you have probably like eighteen to 19,000 outsiders, and you choose the one that applied as a cop. Wow. Do you guys say this out loud before you type it? Do you, do you, do you listen to what that sounds like before you say it? You know, Brian Covert had only been there a few weeks, 12, 10, somewhere around there. He already had problems with WSU, but out the, outside of that, he got pulled over. I don't think he had any issues with law enforcement for them to be like, we got to go and frame this dude. And, and what, what was the purpose of the murders then? When did they frame him, right? Was, was the murder something that happened and they were like, oh man, we need a fall guy, so let's blame, blame Brian Koberger. Well, when did they decide to do that if the knife sheath was collected November 13th and sent to the Idaho State Lab where it was in, you know, in evidence, locked away? They would have had to have planted that evidence shortly after the murders or during the murders. Why would they be doing that then if the goal, I mean, the reason being that they had a, they had to find a fall guy was because the, the the university was pressuring them. They felt that the university was, they, they were going to have a hard time finding this guy day one. So they planted evidence from somebody and he wasn't even home. He was, he was out and about that night based on his own admission and even that day he was out, you know, he, he drove through Moscow for a little bit, but then he went down south to Clarkson and then he was driving around in the back area where he was when his phone was off for about three or four hours. So where, where do they go and get his DNA from? It's insane. Like some of the things that people say is insane. The odds of planting random DNA profile of someone with another state who happens to drive a drive by a crime scene as close to me swimming across the Pacific. I mean, you also have to add a few things there, right? So what are the odds? That Brian Koberger, let's just say he's in it. What are the odds that Brian Koberger is driving around late at night and there's a guy out there, same height and build, driving a white Elantra as well? And do those, how, how much do those odds decrease when you have to factor in that both of these cars don't have a front license plate? During this time that this car would commit a murder while he turned off his phone. What are the odds that that happened? And what are the odds that that person... In that other car that looks like his without a front license plate, that person matches his bill, has his DNA on the sheath of the murder weapon that he's carrying into the house. Those have to be astronomical, if not just flat out impossible. Conspiracy remains, reminds me of Kevin Costner movie, No Way Out. That's the thing. Like a lot of people attribute real life crimes to movies. And, you know, the other thing I wanted to say is because one of the things that were responded were that, you know, police had cleared the victims and stuff. You know, if you go and watch, there's this docuseries on Netflix, American Nightmare. The In this situation, um, this woman got kidnapped. Her fiance was left behind. Uh, they were drugged and, and tied up and, you know, all these things that happened in, the, in his house. They left. They left with her and they emailed him and called him that they were going to ask for a ransom. They didn't believe him. You know, police thought he killed her. Police didn't go out there and say he was a suspect. Not once. Then police started to suspect that this girl hoaxed it. She was out there somewhere 
and that this was a hoax because there was some things that weren't adding up. And she ends up being found and they even speculate more that it was a hoax. Now, at that time, they didn't come out and say that they were hoaxing. They waited. And then at a certain point, they decided to come out and they were going to file charges on them. But during that time where they suspected them in the beginning, they they weren't going to go out there and and, and throw it out there for them to, to know that they're suspecting them of something. And because they eventually did say that they suspected them of something, and at the end of the day, they, they weren't involved in it, it probably changes the way law enforcement act when it comes to possible victims, right? So if you have Dylan Mortensen and you think maybe she is a suspect, but you're not sure, you know, she's not, there's no evidence saying that she did something, you know, outside that she just took forever. You know, her actions were suspect, which were the same thing when it came to that American nightmare. You know, their actions were suspect. They didn't act in the, in the manner that you would have thought that somebody who lost their or had their girlfriend taken away would have acted. And that was one of the reasons why they thought he killed her. So I think that now when officers are in that type of situation, they're probably acting a little bit differently when it comes to what they say to the public. Doesn't mean that, you know, in their mind, they're still, you know, they're not investigating it or behind the scenes that they're not investigating or thinking something different. Yeah. Everything that's said out there is not always accurate, especially before somebody's arrested. All righty, guys, I've been doing this for a little bit. I want to say thank you to everybody that's tuned in. I'll be back. Might be back tomorrow, but for sure on Wednesday and then for sure on Friday. Again, we're going to be doing a members only uh, this weekend. You know, it'll be a lot members live chat where you guys can ask us questions. You know, about anything about the case, about, you know, just ask us anything about how we're doing or whatever. And if, you know, you want to hear that and just, you know, can't uh, become a member at this point, you can go check it out on Spotify. And so if you also want to, you know, listen to us on a podcast style where, you know, you can't, you know, watch us, go check us out on Apple and anywhere else you find your podcast. Just look up Drunk Turkey Show. Until next time, guys. See you later. Peace.